Last Sunday, we discovered a church. It was the very first church in history had something called boldness, boldness. Another word for boldness could be audacity, audacity. The followers of Jesus Christ had the audacity to tell everyone about Jesus' resurrection. They had the audacity to tell people that Jesus was the only way to God. They had the audacity to challenge the government of that day, Romans and Jews alike, saying that they would obey God and not man. They had the audacity to pray to this God, Jesus, who had been dead and now is alive, and they expected him to actually hear and answer prayer. We're going to join the story today and discover that a new movement has begun and what God's design or plan was for this movement of which we are a part. Please never forget and don't try to disconnect the early church from our church today. We're going to talk about the God of truth and a church founded on truth that could not be derailed by lies and how God deals with lies. It's truth and consequences. What happened in this story back then? And what does it mean for us today? This is the so what. What difference does it make to us today? I'd like you to turn with me to Acts 4. Acts 4, we're going to start with verse 32. It's on page 886 in the Bible, if you want to follow in the rack in front of you. And we'll start with verse 32 of Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. 
At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What a strange story, isn't it? It's okay to admit the strange stories that we read about. Why is this story here? Why is this story here? It happened, that's why. It happened. It was part of history. And it demonstrates the contrast of what the church was to be and the sinful condition of the human heart. There's a contrast here between these two parts of the story. And this is how God deals with sin, lying in particular. Now, I want to start with a positive. The first six verses that we looked at show truth, okay? We talk a lot about truth in this church. Truth. Our whole life has to be based on truth. The first six verses show us the truth. It's God's plan for the church. This is a plan that God has for the church. This passage of scripture established a pattern, a waterline, an ideal. It's a picture of how the church ought to function both then and now. What was God's plan for the church? What was his ideal for the church? The first one, first part, is unity. Letter A is unity. Verse 32, it says, All the believers who are one in heart and mind. One heart. What does it mean to be one in heart? Heart, the word cardia, is used in the sense of reason or emotions or will. It denotes the inner being, our inner being, the real you, the real me. And when we are truly possessed by God, soaked with his Holy Spirit, our hearts are aligned with God's priorities, his love, and purposes. We all line up with the, with the same leader, Jesus. Therefore, we're one in personhood and heart with each other. It's unity. God's plan for his church, his family of God, is unity. There's agenda harmony, you could call it. Second, it says they were one mind. One mind. Our thoughts, the way we perceive and think, are in line with Jesus, his, his words, his truth, and his priorities. There's loyalty to the word of God, the Bible. That's what informs our mind. One mind and one heart, one document is the standard for our faith and practice. That's it. And to experience God's plan for the church, we must start with unity in heart and mind, agenda harmony. Now, today we have an incredibly vicious and insidious attack on the unity of the church. If people would say, are Christians united? They, well, there's like 600, 800,000 denominations. How can they be united at all? If it was successful to divide the church, it'll destroy the unity of the church. But one heart and one mind existed from the very beginning. What is the main attack on the church? Think about it. Think about your life. What has been the main attack on the church? In 1993, Albert Moeller was elected as the ninth president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It was a Southern Baptist institution. And one of his first responsibilities was to reestablish faculty at the seminary who believed and practiced and taught the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Word of God. We've lived through this controversy and this battle for the Bible. Is the Bible the word of God? Is it inerrant? Does it have mistakes? All those kinds of things. And if you follow the controversy, 
the Southern Baptist Church had a split over inerrancy. They were not in one heart and one mind. And he told the story. I heard him tell the story about, about he was sent to establish, reestablish the stand of inerrancy at Southern Seminary, one of the main Southern Baptist community or, or seminaries. In his own words, he tells the story of meeting with one elderly, distinguished Bible professor over lunch. And Albert Moeller said to this gentleman, he said, all we're asking is that you have the same view of the scriptures that Jesus had. I want you to have the same view of the scriptures that Jesus had. Jesus affirmed the Genesis account of creation, the establishment of marriage between one man and one woman. He reaffirmed the great flood in Noah's time, the story of Jonah and the big fish, and many, many prophecies throughout the Old Testament. Jesus referred to them as scripture. And he said, I want you to have the same view of the scripture as Jesus had. The professor said, I never thought of that before. Wow. The attack on scriptures. It's been the watershed of the church today. And dividing lines can, can be drawn back to this watershed issue. We're going to talk about this in the new members class. The fact that we've established this church, the Wesleyan church and the Wesleyan denomination on the inerrancy and infallibility of the scripture in the original autographs. Church denominations that have compromised on the inerrancy of the Bible have forsaken the biblical view of marriage, of homosexuality, of sin. They can now have same-sex marriage. There are now multiple genders. It's, it's insane to see what's happened when you leave what the Word of God says. And we can talk, I have friends that, that are in or were in the Presbyterian Church USA, PCUSA. They ratified a redefinition definition of marriage and they allowed homosexuals to be in the pulpit and be pastors. Most recently, the United Methodist Church, many of you are aware of this, some of you were there. The United Methodist Church basically redefined, they split into two denominations over the issue of inerrancy of Scripture. It all started by saying the Bible contains the Word of God instead of the Bible is the Word of God. And that followed their decision. They decided to, that 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 homosexuality was fine, that, that gay marriage was fine, that, that genders are fine, you can, you can redefine it, because they left the Bible, the truth, and it disrupts what? Unity. If he can divide the church, if Satan can divide the church and let us leave the word of God, what is the basis of unity? It's not pastor's sermons, it's, not, it's the word of God. The word of God. We have many friends, both in the United Methodist Church and Presbyterian Church USA, that have been torn apart by this controversy because they believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. One mind loyal to the word of God, the words of Jesus. Now, it's not that we all think identically, but we do hold to a set body of truth, the Bible. And we hold all of our minds and intellects to Objective, absolute truth. Some people say, well, that's a divisive issue. It's a divisive issue. Aren't we supposed to be together? Norman Geisler, when he was talking about this, said, 
I would rather be divided by truth than united in error. Let me say that again. I'd rather be divided by truth than united in error. And unity of, of mind and heart was at the root of the beginning, the foundation of this church. How can we develop that? So unity. In the context of this unity comes the next part of God's plan. This God's plan, his blueprint for the church. It was unselfishness, letter B. Verse 32 said, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. That's what stewardship is. I, I own nothing. Now this is not, I own nothing and will be happy. That's the catchphrase for the globalists trying to establish one world government. You will own nothing and you will be happy. That's not this, okay? Just so you know that. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. It belongs to God. We're stewards entrusted with the gifts. Now, there are two characteristics that we note in this chapter, in this passage. First of all, they had an intense sense of responsibility for each other. They had an intense sense of responsibility for each other. They're to care for one another. Why did we establish connect groups? Because we want to connect to people and understand and get to know one another so we have a responsibility for one another. Number two, they had a real desire to share all they had. They wanted to share all they had. Now, this sharing was not to make someone look good. When it says they shared everything, this was in the the use of their possessions, not the actual possession of them. In other words, these people never gave up the right to personal property. The right to personal property is part of the whole culture of the Judaistic culture, the history of the Bible, and all throughout the Old and New Testament. But they just had a sense of unity that they shared in the use of whatever one had. They sold something, gave up something to give to those in need. What's mine is yours, I give it. Now, this was not mandatory. You didn't come into the, into the body of Christ. They said, no, it's mandatory that you do this or do that. It was voluntary. It wasn't legislated. It was spontaneous. It was a, a way to eliminate needs within the community. Not that we're to sell everything we have and live in a commune together. That's not what this was about. But resources being shared. Now, one of the things, notice, there's the initiative for taking action on needs, okay? The people who took action on needs were, were always the people who had means, not people that were requesting or begging for need from the wealthy. This is a responsibility for all of us since we have something to offer to find a need to fill it. Now, you look around, what do I have to give to someone in need? There has to be a balance here. And let me, let me address this because all of us are made aware of needs, okay? And the question is, what do I do with that need? Sometimes we have to distinguish wants from needs. And this particular generous heart of the church was taken advantage of later, okay? Um, there's a uh, first century church in Thessalonica. Paul addresses this issue, and you want to listen carefully to this. In Thessalonica, some people took advantage of the generosity of people, and they expected to be fed and supported with no effort on their behalf, okay? 
He just said, I'm here, I have a need, you've got to fill it. Paul wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 3. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. If a man shall not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge to settle down and earn the bread they eat. What, what is he saying? In this generous church, some people said, oh, this is a free ride. I'm, I'm just going to not do anything. I have everybody feed me and take care of me and do whatever. That's what Paul addresses in Thessalonians. It addresses idleness Lazy people or freeloaders. Okay? This is a huge topic covering unemployed welfare recipients, the role of the church, all of this stuff to help. And, and we do have a role to help. We have a responsibility to be part of a community of believers. And as part of that community, God calls us to compassion and responsibility. Okay? Compassion and responsibility. That's the balance. And we must find that balance. In the church in Thessalonica, people were taking advantage and they would just say, do for me whatever. And they were lazy, they were idle, they wouldn't do anything for it. That's not what this is about. So there's a balance between compassion and responsibility. Compassion on those in need, but responsibility to do whatever I can that's an important thing, a very important thing. And we know what happens when, when welfare is given out without any responsibility. People don't, don't work for whatever. They, we started working with, with workfare, saying if you, we want to help you out, but you have to do something, uh, some kind of work to, to compensate for that. And it lifted people's spirits. It lifted them, their self-esteem. It did all kinds of things. We're not here to just receive for nothing. God has placed us to be productive in whatever way. And we've experienced, all of you have experienced, people wanting to receive from you without any effort. That's not what this is. It's generosity giving to make sure nobody in the community has needs. Compassion. That's unselfishness. The third part of God's plan for the, for the church was powerful witness. Powerful witness. Verse 33 says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is, this is life change. Last Sunday we talked about boldness. Boldness because we're convinced of the resurrection, the power of Jesus' resurrection in, in us because of the Holy Spirit. How powerful is our witness as a church? Are we seeing lives changed? Are people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? How powerful is your witness personally? Now, many of us chose to follow Jesus so long ago, it's hard to remember the before and after. You know, I used to hear these dramatic testimonies. And somebody said, I was doing this and that, got saved, and I changed completely. And I go, well, man, I was... I gave my life to Jesus at age seven. I didn't have this awful past to be saved from. Now, there was the salvation of, of preservation. He preserved. But sometimes we forget the present power of God in our lives today. The present. How is your walk with God changing your life now? How is your life different? 
on a daily basis. This is far more than just the initial life change we experienced. We are being changed constantly. And the question is, how is God impacting your life now, today, today? God's plan, his purpose for us. Your story of life change, past or present, is powerful. And is God working in your life today? What's he doing? What, what is he doing? God wants us to share. Fourthly, God's plan is for grace. Letter D. First 33 says, much grace is upon them all. When I say a person has a lot of grace or is gracious, what comes to mind? They're giving. They're not demanding. They're loving unconditionally. Grace permeated the early church. Not condemnation, but grace. We think about how Jesus approached sinners. Now, sometimes, in fact, one of the media Super Bowl advertisement was, he gets us. He gets us. It was about acceptance, but it wasn't, it was about saying, God has forgiven your sin, but they don't include, but go and sin no more. Okay? Jesus always forgave. He always accepted people. He said, I will forgive your sin. But he always said, go and sin no more. Leave your life a sin. It's easy to just say, oh, I accept you and accept you the way you are. You know, Jesus accepts us, but he also says, go and sin no more. Now, why would he do that? He wants to spoil our foot. No, he wants to redeem us and save us from the destructive behavior that we've been in. Grace. Grace is receiving something we don't deserve. This means loving people, accepting people for who they are. Love the sinner. We may not love the sin, but we love the sinner. Letter E was trust. God's plan for the church was trust. And this is huge. Trust specifically in leadership. These people brought their money to the leadership for them to distribute to those in need. God's plan is to trust leadership. And it's been tragic over the, over the last years how the church leaders, many church leaders have failed or proved unworthy of the trust of their people. Financial scandals or moral failures, control or abuse of people, child abuse by clergy or teachers, sexual abuse, part of the dark history of many denominations and many churches, unfortunately. That's why we're very careful how we handle transparently Finances, how do we handle how do we handle children, background checks, how do we handle uh, people in their time of need? It's critical that we trust and have trust in leaders. Many times lives are shattered. And I tell people all the time, don't look to humans, look to God. Don't put anybody on a pedestal. Leaders can fail, Jesus never fails. But trust in the integrity of church leadership is part of God's plan and pattern for the church. And leadership needs to establish and, and gain trust. It's not just, oh, I trust you, you got a title. No. Gaining the trust, critical in every part of the body. Now, I, I thank God that the overwhelming majority of church leaders have not been tainted with financial scandals or moral failure. They've been faithful. Our responsibility is to protect and care for people. 
and trust, integrity is part of God's plan. Finally, God's plan for his church includes encouragement. Let her have encouragement. It references one person, an encourager. This passage isn't about encouragement, but it's about a person who's an encourager, Barnabas. Barnabas was called the encourager. And if it's in the passage, that means it's important. Okay? There's no wasted space, no wasted words in the Bible. We need encouragers. We hear negative every day, many times a day. Negative news, put-downs, tough days, big challenges. We need encouragement, verbal encouragement. You are appreciated. Thank you for what you do. You are special. You have a beautiful smile. Have you lost weight? Positive, positive, whatever you want to say, positive. One person estimated that we need 10 positives for every one negative that we hear. We need 10 positives for every one negative. Verbal positive, look for the positive, encourage. Speak praise, speak the good. Encouragement is the word parakaleo, which means to come alongside, comfort, strengthen, to help us stand. Encouragement, it's a spiritual gift listed in Romans 12. It's an amazing character quality. So unity, unselfishness, powerful witness, grace, trust, and encouragement, all the, the needs of people filled. And then we get a, to a contrast. What do we find? That's chapter 4, the end of 4. It's this great positive picture. What do we find in chapter 5? What do we find in 5? We had the positive. Now we've got the pretenders of the church. Roman numeral 2, the pretenders of the church. Now, why did this story make it into Acts? Everything was looking so good. <laughs> I asked that. When I see stories like this, I said, why did they put that in there? That's like, yeah, it's no fun. Everything was going, because it happened this way. The church was not perfect then, and it's not perfect today. We have pretenders in every church. And if we're honest, I think that we would discover that we all pretend, at least a little bit. <laughs> okay. We all pretend a little bit. We start, it starts with a conspiracy. It was the plan. Some lies are spontaneous. Some lies are planned. This was a planned deception. Ananias and Sapphira planned this deception. And what's so odd about this conspiracy, this church is full of grace. Nobody said you had to sell anything or give anything. There were no rules that established selling and giving. Giving was voluntary, not compulsory. These were not dues that you had to pay to your union. They were gifts to be given freely. And there was nothing wrong with bringing only part of the sale, 20% or 50%. They didn't have to do anything. So what was wrong with this picture? What, what was wrong? They lied. They lied. And Ananias and Sapphira made it look as if they brought the whole proceeds of the sale, not just part of it. Why? Let her be the deception. Act. This was the act. They gave to look good. They wanted to look as good as everybody else did, but their actions revealed their true motives. They gave to look good. They, they lied by their actions. Do we ever lie by our actions? You know, don't answer that. Do we ever lie by our actions? Not necessarily with money. Some do with money as long as they get a plaque recognizing their gift or as long as they get a building named after them, they'll give. Nothing wrong 
with having a building named after you as long as that wasn't the motivation, okay? It's okay. Giving to look good, lying by our actions or pretending. We want to, to do what's right, and I think all of us assume we want to do right, but the main motive here was they wanted to look good. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be noticed. In Matthew 6, 1 through 4, there, there's the passage, and we don't have time to go into it today. I, I preach on it in stewardship. But the people that were giving to be seen. And what Jesus said, they gave, they, they blew their trumpets and drew the attention to their gifts so everybody would know, wow, look what they gave. And he said, they wanted to look good, and they looked good, but that's all they got. They, they're not going to get a reward. Okay. Jesus said, they're not getting a re- they got their reward, they look good, and that's it. Okay. That's all the reward is. So if we do things to look good, then we look good, and that's all we get for the reward. When we do things in secret, with proper motives, God rewards us. But deception is serious. It's totally the opposite of everything we base our life on, which is truth. Truth. And sometimes, honestly, it's so subtle we don't even notice. Or we sweep it under the carpet of pride, just feel good about ourselves. Live words or live actions trying to look good in order to be noticed. And then we have hypocrisy, letter C, living the lie, pretending. Pretending has severe consequences. Why? Because number one, it subverts truth in all areas of our life. If we base our life on truth, if we pretend, it's anti-truth. When pretending permeates the church, nothing is as it seems. Nothing is real. Nothing can be trusted. When I have talked to people over the years, I ask them, what are you looking for in a church? If they're looking for a church, um, you know, You get answers like, oh, I want this kind of worship, or I want this kind of preaching, I want this, I want that program for this, that, and the other thing. But if you're asked down to boil it down to the bottom line, what they want in a church is authenticity. Authenticity. They want real people. They want real authenticity. They want pretenders. And our life is full of people who pretend. We need to counter that with, authenticity. The second consequence of pretending is it renders us powerless. Renders us powerless. Our power to be bold is based on truth. Truth. Bottom line. I got a speeding ticket once. Actually more than once, but I'm only admitting to this one. (laughs) And I decided to go to court to fight it. I knew I was guilty, but I wanted to explain the circumstances. You know, we want to justify. I was a lot younger last year. No, it wasn't last year. This, this was years ago. I wanted to explain the circumstances. I wanted to explain. I wanted to make an excuse. But the truth was not on my side, okay? It just wasn't on my side. I knew I was guilty. And as I explained to the judge, I, I tried to be bold and convincing, but... I had no conviction, no power, and the truth was I was guilty. I wanted so badly to boldly argue my case, but I kind of melted. 
And I will never, ever forget that feeling because truth was not on my side. Truth was nowhere there. I was guilty. I wanted excuses. I did get the ticket reduced, but that's all. <laughs> if truth is not on our side, we are rendered powerless. Powerless. Hypocrisy or pretending renders us impotent, not important, impotent, powerless. And the, ch the Christian church is filled with powerless people who think they're important, but they're impotent. Why? Because they're pretending. Some people pretend to be a follower of Jesus. No devotional life, no communication with God, no communion, no conversation. Pretenders who feign righteousness yet refuse to give up secret sins, whatever they may be. Pretenders. The third, thirdly, hypocrisy lies to people and to God. How serious is this? You know, we're talking about how serious is inauthenticity or pretending. Because we, we tend to kind of, well, it's not a big deal. It lies to people and to God. Peter said, Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Lied to the Holy Spirit. What's Satan got to do with this? It's satanic to lie to God. God is truth. Satan is a liar and father of lies. And any time we leave truth and hold the lies or pretend, whatever we do, we play into the hands of our enemy. We lose that power. We don't have the power to go forward. In 1 John 1, 5 to 7, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Light, truth, truth. Why was the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira so severe? I've asked that. I've asked that. Lying is serious. Hypocrisy is under the judgment of God. And God knew he needed to stop it right there. Conspiracy, deception, and hypocrisy. And then there is letter C, selfishness. Kept for yourself. What's mine is mine. I'm going to control it. Note the contrast between God's plan for the church at the end of four and the first part of five. You have unity, unselfishness, powerful witness, grace, trust, and blessing. Or you have conspiracy, selfishness, hypocrisy, law and obligation, deception, and judgment. A contrast between end of four, first of five. So what happened? Judgment, judgment. Consequences of the lie. Both Ananias and Sapphira died instantly. You know, when I've read that, I thought, I mean, couldn't, couldn't he have just had their nose grow like Pinocchio and expose them that way? I mean, dying? Are you kidding me? I don't know why God allowed that or caused that. And I'm not going to say you're, you'll die instantly if you tell a lie or live a lie, but it is a picture of our spiritual state. If we lie, we sin. If we lie, we die spiritually. 
it totally impacts our relationship with God. And if we live in a constant lifestyle of lies, pretending at some point our spiritual destiny of eternal life is in question. Lied to God. See, all sin is against God. God judges sin in three time zones. Three time zones. He judged our past. He judged our sin at the cross at Calvary. Killed it. In the present, he judges sin amongst his people. In the future, he will judge sin on the last day. This account demonstrates that God judges sin in the present, not just the past and future. But the purpose of, purpose of it is always redemptive. Redemptive. Why? To bring people back into relationship with God. That's always what it is. So we find Roman numeral three, God will always prevail. God will always prevail. Verse 11 says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God's grace are his teaching moments. Okay? You know, we don't like those, <laughs> those teaching moments. God says, I'm going to teach you something here. Oh, no, don't, please. God was teaching his people that sin is no light matter. And God's motive for judging sin was the preservation of relationship. Preservation of relationship. God loves us so much he will affect judgment in order to get our attention, teach the right path, and to preserve this precious relationship he died to bring about. The good news is that God wants to purify us and he wants to purify the church so that we can become all we are created to be. Judgment brings us to repentance, restoration, and full blessing so we can experience all that God wants us to experience. Isn't it good to know that the first church had problems too? I take encouragement in the fact that, wow, they dealt with stuff too. Because we deal with stuff every day in our lives personally, in our lives corporately. God's plan for the church is not thwarted by pretenders. God will always have a plan. Which choice do you have to make today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us the whole picture. We don't have to guess what happened. And we know that your plan is for the church to be pure and holy. And you call us on a journey. And that journey is full of ups and downs and risks and all kinds of things. And I pray, God, that as we move forward, that as we follow you with all our heart, soul, and mind, that you would transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, filling us with his Holy Spirit so we can make a difference. In Jesus' name.